Hello and welcome to Folklore of the Universe, the podcast where every episode comes packaged with a nice refreshing breeze. I'm your host, Kyle. This is episode 31. Originally, I was actually having a really hard time thinking of what I wanted to do for this episode, because I had the past six or so ones really well planned out, but then after that it just sort of dropped off and I didn't know what I wanted to do. I spent a long time trying to figure out what to do so it wasn't just 20 minutes of me rambling about nothing, which would not have been good listening, I don't think. But finally I got it, so we're gonna go with sort of a mountain theme for this episode. So one of our stories is from the Himalayas from Nepal, the other one is from the Alps from Switzerland, then our monster of the week is from Japan, which, you know, they, they have mountains over there, it's kind of mountainous. It's only a loose theme anyway, I don't like doing these super strict themes all the time, I just like having the stories be somewhat loosely connected by some, some means, so that is the plan. With that, let's get started. So first up is our monster of the week. This is from Japan, as I said. This is uh, called the Daidarabochi. I probably butchered that pronunciation, but that's the closest I can get. The Daidarabochi are a type of giant, which are so big that when they sleep on their sides, they look like mountain ranges, and their footprints turn into lakes and ponds. So these are big-ass giants. Appearance-wise, they commonly just look like giant people with bald heads, then they have these uh, big eyes, they've got lolling tongues, and they've got pitch black skin. So this is giant night, night giants. Giant giants. They feature in a lot of interesting legends, though. For example, in this one where a Daidarabochi weighed Mount Fuji and Mount Tsukuba to see which one was heavier. So it picks them both up, see which one was heavier. But when he put them back down, he accidentally uh, drops Mount Tsukuba and it split the peak, which is why it looks like that now. There's also another legend that a Daidarapochi just made Mount Fuji, that it scooped up all the dirt in the area and put that into a big pile, and that made Mount Fuji, and that's why Mount Fuji is in a large basin, because there's that big dugout area from all the dirt he scooped up. So these creatures are very much explanations for geography. They're there to explain lakes, they're to explain mountain ranges, or why certain mountains look certain ways. So there's these big colossal terraformers in uh, Japanese folklore, essentially. And if you're a fan of the uh, Miyazaki movie Princess Mononoke, which is a really, really good one, and you should go watch it if you haven't seen it, or the Nightwalker in that is inspired by the Daidarabochi as this huge, colossal creature which walks around and changes the landscape as it goes. Overall, though, they seem fairly chill, as long as they don't accidentally step on you, which would not be ideal. But otherwise, they just move the landscape around, but they're pretty cool don't seem to cause too much problems. Now though, it's time for our first story. The story is from Nepal, and this one is called The Sparrow's Lost Bean. Once upon a time, there's a sparrow who is very neat and clean. Its nest was spotless, and it always washed up before eating. One morning, the sparrow found a bean, and was overjoyed that it didn't have to search the neighborhood for food. As was its habit, it went down to the river to wash up after putting the bean safely away on the bridge. When the sparrow returned, expecting to eat a fine breakfast, alas, the bean was nowhere to be found. As it was looking everywhere for its food, it saw a carpenter walking up the bridge. The sparrow went up to the carpenter and said, I have lost my bean. Please help me find it. Who's going to listen to you? said the carpenter and continued on his way. Just then, the sparrow saw a soldier walking up the bridge. It pleaded with him to help find the bean. The soldier, too, was uncooperative. 
Who's going to help us, Sparrow? He said, and walked away. Then a captain came up the bridge, but wouldn't help the Sparrow either. Then a minister, but no help from him too. He just laughed and kept walking. The hungry Sparrow became desperate. Then the king came riding on an elephant. Sparrow was certain it would get justice from the most powerful person in the country. But the king pretended not to hear the Sparrow's pleas and said nothing. As the Sparrow sat there dejected, an ant came up and asked, What's the matter? Didn't you see the king pass by? The Sparrow then told the ant how everybody from the carpenter to the king had ignored its appeals to help it find the lost bean. Don't worry, said the ant, we will find the bean somehow. The ant then crawled up to the elephant's ear and said, Tell the king to find the sparrow's bean, or I will go inside your ear and bite you. The terrified elephant turned to the king and said, You better help the sparrow, O king, or I will throw you off my back. The king was startled. He immediately summoned the minister and ordered, Help find the sparrow, or you are fired. The minister called the captain right away and said, Do whatever the sparrow says, or you are in trouble. The captain then called the soldier, gave him explicit orders. The soldier, in turn, found the carpenter and told him, Find the sparrow's bean, or I'll hang you from this bridge itself. The carpenter searched for half a day, and finally found the lost bean, and the sparrow had a satisfying breakfast that day. The End This story is apparently one of the most popular children's stories in Nepal, which makes sense because it's fairly simple, but it's fun, it's easy, it's got a good moral. It's just an all-around perfect hitter. That's how baseball analogies work, right? Maybe? Maybe not? Anyway, this story is specifically from the Newar people of Nepal, which are one of the many ethnic groups that make up the country because there's a bunch of different ethnicities and different groups that make up Nepal. The Newars are the people in the Kathmandu Valley, sort of the heartland of the country, because Kathmandu is the capital. But they also only make up around 5% of the current population. Of course, though, because all these different groups are in contact and sharing ideas back and forth, the story probably has elements and influences from many other cultures across all over that entire region, honestly. Just like with all folklore, it is influenced by other ideas and other cultures and spreads across trade routes and meetings and all that jazz, so it's not specific probably to the Nawars, but that is the group where it comes from, officially. There are two big morals or themes that make up the story. The first one is just helping people, uh, no matter who they are. So obviously the carpenter doesn't want to help the sparrow because it's a sparrow and he doesn't want to help a bird, uh, but he gets forced into it in the end eventually, and it just sort of goes to show that you shouldn't judge people who want your help. Just help them and everything works out. Don't just... Because all they did was delay it and make everyone have more trouble and effort than they needed, so just do it in the first place and you are golden. The second big theme is sort of how power dynamics work, because there's this scene in it where, um, sort of in a Monty Python-esque fashion, the king gets assigned to help the sparrow, and he just foists it off on the person below him, who foists it off on the person below him, until it goes all the way back down to the carpenter. So, really big passing the buck there, which is not very great. Truman would not approve, but that's also sort of what happens, is that everyone delegates stuff, responsibilities down as far down as they'll go, and of course, they claim the um, responsibility and reward for them, but it's everyone else below them who does that. So that's less of a moral and more just of a commentary on human nature and how society works. But that's not the only angle to this theme, because there's also the aspects that the two characters who get things going are the ant, who, I mean, it's an ant, it represents small, insignificant, powerless, 
and the elephant, who's just the king's his ride. But together, they make things happen, because the ant threatens to bite the elephant, the elephant threatens to throw off the king. So together, they make the king answer to them and help the sparrow. So there's also this aspect of, while people in power will delegate responsibility down, they still do have to answer to people below them, and people below them do have some power over their superiors, uh, usually by threatening them with physical violence. But, hey, that's how, that's how it works, right? I mean, most monarchies, or basically, we'll let you be our tyrant and absolute ruler, but if things get too, too shitty, we will guillotine you, so keep that in mind. So that is that theme. There's this sort of balance of power where the powerful will subjugate and be shitty to people they think as below them, but the people below them still have some power over the people above them and can use that to help themselves if need be. So there we go. I bet you weren't expecting a fucking political philosophy, human social development, psychology class from a uh, goddamn children's story, but this is an advanced children's story. This is next level. Now, though, it's time to move on to our next story. This is our Swiss folktale. Now, this one is called How a Robber Band Was Tricked. Once in a Swiss valley, there's a band of robbers. They were so fierce and cunning that people became afraid to leave their houses. They would pile furniture behind their doors at night and never went to bed without placing their swords or halberds near at hand. And when they went out to till their fields, they always went in groups, carrying their forks and hoes on one shoulder and their swords on the other. Even so, the robbers swooped down every day on some farm and carried back sackfuls of loot to their mountain retreat, so things went from bad to worse in the valley. If we could find the robbers' den, the peasants said among themselves, we could trap them like marmots in their hole. Anyone who dares to go up to their mountain as spy on them risks getting killed by them. Perhaps not said a rich farmer. What do you mean, Jacob? Do you have some plan? Yes, answered Jacob. Wait and see. The next morning, Jacob put on his hooded blouse and took with him just a stick, freshly cut from an ash. Then he walked away on the deserted road. Far from the village, near an oak forest, the bandits came and surrounded him. Dozens of bloodthirsty eyes glared at him. What are you doing here? shouted the chieftain. Jacob put on a stupid air and began to weep like a child who was being spanked. I have done nothing, he cried. A simpleton, said one of the robbers. His beard was as dusty as a bunch of grass by the roadside. Let's hang him. Wait, said the chief. He might be able to give us some useful information. I can cook, suggested Jacob, drying his eyes. I can cook well. A burst of laughter answered him. A chef. That does not sound so silly to me, declared the chief. We could need someone to cook our dinner while we are away. Why not take him with us? So Jacob was taken along. They climbed along a steep mountain trail, which led to a deep cave hidden behind a screen of black fir trees. Here, he was thrown upon a pile of straw, and as night had fallen by then, he went to sleep as soundly as if he had been in his own bed. Look how the fool sleeps, said the chief to his lieutenant. One would think he was in his mother's house. <laughs> Maybe so, but I'll watch him anyway, said the lieutenant, who was always suspicious and alert. In the morning, the band made ready to leave on one of its daily raids. The chief showed Jacob where the food was kept. See that everything is clean around here, and the soup ready when we return tonight. If not... Left alone, Jacob studied the cave carefully, noting just where it was in the mountains. He needed to keep the chief pleased with his work, so he set to work. 
When the band returned, hungry and loaded down with loot, the cave was neat and tidy, and a big cauldron of soup was steaming over the fire alongside three roasted sheep. Ah, you simpleton, said the chief. You have not lied. That soup smells good. Jacob gave a silly smile, but did not answer. Everything went well during the next few days. Jacob observed the robbers' habits and, while they were away, took note of the cave's surroundings. At night, the bandits were pleased with his cooking. The more stupid he looked, the more joyous they became. Only the lieutenant kept an ever-suspicious eye on him. One day, while the robber band was away, Jacob went into the woods to find a place in which his village friends could hide in ambush. Then he saw the lieutenant returning unexpectedly. Jacob had to think fast. Seeing some raspberry bushes nearby, he began to pick the berries. What are you doing here, so far away from the cave? Spying? inquired the lieutenant. Huh? Oh, one must pick raspberries when they are ripe, grumbled Jacob, and put the raspberries in his handkerchief. Tonight there will be raspberries for dinner. They are very good. Raspberries, raspberries, growled the bandit. The same evening, he asked his chief to get rid of the simple-minded cook. I think he is a spy. If we don't hang him, he will get all of us hanged. The chief shook his head and looked sideways at his cook. Heavens, he said, but I do like his soup. The place was becoming unsafe for Jacob, he decided, so early next morning, after he'd made certain that all the robbers had gone down to the mountain, he took a shortcut to his village, running almost all the way. Everyone there had thought he was dead, so he was received with shouts of joy, but he had no time to waste. Jacob explained quickly what he had seen and done, then ordered all the men to take up their arms and follow him up the mountain. He led the peasants to the cave, by the same shortcut by which he had come down. The bandits were not yet back, so Jacob had time to place all his men in the woods surrounding the den. No dinner was smoking over the fire when the band returned. No cook greeted them with a silly smile. Surprised and worried, the robbers went out into the wood, calling Jacob, while the chef's lieutenant repeated, I warned you, I warned you. This was the moment Jacob had been waiting for. At his signal, the peasants fell upon the scattered robbers and made short work of them. The next day, they hung the robber band from the highest trees on the mountain. The villagers could go on living as they wanted. Frisch from Froelich Frey, as they said, which meant bold, pious, cheerful, and free. The End This is something of an unusual story as far as European fairy tales folklore go, because nothing magic or supernatural happens. Like, there's not even a talking animal, and usually talking animals are a dime a dozen in European fairy tales. Like, you can't go five goddamn feet without tripping over one, or some other inanimate talking objects. Those are pretty common too, but nothing in this one, which is interesting. This one is all normal, realistic stuff. Switzerland, too, is just an interesting country and interesting culture because it's kind of a crossroads, but also kind of not. It's nestled in these little mountain valleys in the Alps, and the official languages are their French, German, Italian, and Romance, which is sort of the local language in the southern area, but it's a sort of crossroads between these different cultures, traveling through these mountain valleys and passes and all intermingling, but then also it's really heavily fortified because it's surrounded by mountains, so it's a sort of little own enclave fortress. And we get a little bit of that geography in the story, where it mentions the valleys and the mountains... So this is very Swiss-themed, this particular story, especially attuned to the geography. But while there is this sort of meeting of cultures here, 
It's also just more of got its own Alpine culture, which it aligns with more closely, because you'll find even in Germany, like the culture around the Alps and the culture around other parts of Germany are different. So along the Alps in Europe, the, they just have their own specific culture, like um, Krampus, which we talked about in the holiday winter one. Uh, Krampus is from Alpine culture, less so from general Germanic culture. So the Alps do have their own sort of special cultural views and cultural alignment, which I think Switzerland falls more in tune with than it does particularly with anything else. So while there are these other languages and cultural influences, it does have its own one more, and it's more of mountainous culture than those other places, if that crazy ramble made any sense whatsoever. Uh, to shorten it, Switzerland is in the mountain, so it does mountain stuff. There we go, that's the too long, didn't listen version. While this doesn't have any magic supernatural stuff, it does have some hallmarks of other European fairy tales, like robbers and bandits show up a fair bit, and defeating them with trickery or cleverness is a fairly common thing, or with disguises, like the, um, the town musicians of Bremen, is where a bunch of animals do disguises to scare away robbers, so sort of a similar idea of uh, fooling them by pretending to be something else. And then, yes, in some cases, after you're done fooling them, you do all violently kill them, because you always have a, got a good bit of violence in um, the European folklore. It's pretty, it's pretty heavy stuff. It gets pretty brutal. But that's what life was like back in medieval times. It wasn't great. We also have this uh, character of the lieutenant, who I don't think was directly influenced by this, but is very reminiscent of the Greek oracles from Greek stories and Greek epics. Because famously, the oracles tell the truth that something bad is going to happen, and no one listens to them, and then bad stuff happens, and the oracle's like, well, I told you so, as they're getting killed alongside everyone else. So I don't, th I think this is just the same idea cropping up in multiple places, the whole I told you so vibe. I don't think it was directly influenced by these Greek myths, but it could have been too, it could have spread over, it's really hard to tell, but sort of a cool, similar story structure and story element. But then also there's kind of a break from tradition because oftentimes it was someone who's really poor or her youngest son who's the protagonist of these stories, but in this case it was one of the richest farmers. So kind of an interesting flip-flop how normally it's someone disadvantaged rising to the top and succeeding, but in this case it's someone who's already advantaged continuing to win at life, which is kind of kind of unusual for these stories, but not completely unheard of. Then finally, we've got this little phrase at the end, the Frisch from Frolich Frey, which tells us that this is from Eastern Switzerland because that is German, so it comes from the German-speaking part of the country. But that is all I've got for that story, so it's time to start wrapping up the episode. As always, thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. We've got another one coming out the normal time in two weeks, so that'll be about, I don't know, it'll be about something. I'll come up with whatever uh, before then. Maybe go, maybe go back to North America, do some Native American stories or something. I don't know. I'll figure something out. But got that to look forward to. As always, please uh, share this show around. Tell new people about it. All that jazz. Uh, once again, got my email in the description. So if you've got any story ideas or feedback, shoot me an email. I'll be happy to take a look and maybe incorporate stuff into the show. If you've got a cool story or monster of the week. Otherwise, though, I guess I will see you next time. So this has been the show. I've been Kyle, and bye bye